truth about self-love. <clears throat> I would love to give everyone here a book by Jay Adams titled The Biblical View of Self-Esteem, Self-Love, and Self-Image. But since I can't afford it, and probably only a handful of you would actually read it, I'm going to read portions of it to you today. I will quote from it and allude to it several times. But if you can get a hold of this book, which should not be too difficult, it'd be well worth your reading. Now, the reason I'm talking about this subject is because of the way love is thrown around in the church today without any biblical foundation, and because of our study recently of Romans 14 and 15. Now, Paul says in Galatians <clears throat> that one of the boundaries of our freedom is in Christ is that rather than biting and consuming and devouring one another with harsh words, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Pastor Robert Schuler, and I use that word pastor very loosely, wrote a best-selling book called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. In it, he calls for a new reformation to rid ourselves of the ideas and emphasis of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century that taught that all men are condemned sinners in need of God's grace. Schuler says we need to rid ourselves of such thoughts. He writes, quote, once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Christ, unquote. So instead, he tells us the New Reformation will focus on what he calls the sacred right of every person to self-esteem. There is another in this movement whose name is Walter Trobisch, and he says that the gospel of the New Reformation includes the following emphasis, quote, you cannot love your neighbor, you cannot love God unless you love yourself. Without self-love, there is no love for others, end quote. Or as another has written, quote, actually our ability to love God and to love our neighbor is limited by our ability to love ourselves. We cannot love God more than we love our neighbor, and we cannot love our neighbor more than we love ourselves, which means then that we cannot love God more than we love ourselves, end quote. So according to these men, Whitney Houston was right when she sang, the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. So what is the summary of the gospel of this new reformation? It is love for God is dependent on our love for neighbor, which is dependent on our love for self. Love for God and love for neighbor are contingent on you loving yourself. Trobish again, quote, Furthermore, a person loves another person in order to meet basic needs within himself. God or man is loved in order to satisfy the needs of the one doing the loving, end quote. In other words, 
This new reformation says man needs to love himself. Man needs to love other people. Man needs to love God. So what does that say about the gospel of the new reformation? It means in loving other people, man is simply satisfying his own needs and basically loving himself. That's a great basis for a relationship, is it not? He says, would you please spend the rest of your life serving me and let me love you for my sake because of my needs? Forget you, I have a need to love myself. I have a need to love God. I have a need to love my neighbors. So in stroking other people, I'm really stroking myself. And Jay Adams says, here is the implication of all of this. Quote, man cannot be held responsible for obedience to the biblical commands to love God and his neighbor if he has been deprived of the satisfaction of basic personal needs, end quote. I mean, you can't blame him for not loving God, the poor guy, and not loving his neighbor if his own personal needs aren't met first, because that is the basis of it all. If you don't love yourself and satisfy your needs, how are you going to love God and other people? But nowhere in the Bible do we ever find even the slightest hint that Christians must meet each other's needs in order to make it possible to obey God's commandments. In fact, Jesus contradicts such a view in Matthew 6. So if you would please turn there with me, Matthew 6. We're going to look at a lot of passages today that the New Reformation people quote to try and prove the prerequisite of self-love. And then we're going to look at some passages they overlook for whatever reason. But in Matthew 6, you'll see that the view of Jesus contradicts the view of the New Reformation, that love is basically meeting needs, and you must meet your first primary need of loving yourself, and then the various other needs of loving other people. But unless your needs are met, you'll not be able to love as you should. Notice how Jesus deals with that in Matthew 6, 25 and following. <clears throat> Actually, <clears throat> 25 through 34. <clears throat> Matthew six twenty-five through 34. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spend. 
Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like some of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice the contrast between the philosophy of the life of the Gentiles, that is, the pagans, and the philosophy of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that a pagan seeks security in things he thinks he needs, and in those basic needs are not, if those basic needs are not met, he is insecure. Such things as food, clothing, shelter, and the like. Whereas on the other hand, the Christian philosophy of life says that the Christian is to look away from himself and his own worries and his own cares and focus his concern on Christ's kingdom and doing righteousness, not worrying about his own needs. You see, the contrast couldn't be clearer than the anti-Christian New Reformation gospel and the Christian Old Reformation gospel. The new one says, you must love yourself first. If you don't have a sense of self-worth and self-esteem, if you haven't made the basic needs of your life and love yourself, you can't expect to love God or your neighbor. Jesus said, that is the way a pagan thinks. That is the way a pagan approaches life. A Christian casts all of his worries upon the Lord and focuses not on having his needs met, but on doing what Jesus Christ would have him do. Here is Jay Adams again. Quote, Pagan thought emphasizes getting what you think you need while godly thought emphasizes giving God the honor and service in his church, what he deserves totally apart from whether your needs are met or not, end quote. You see, the really important thing in the Christian life is not having your needs met. The important thing in the Christian life is giving the honor and service to God that he deserves as our Lord and Savior. And by the way, have you noticed in the New Reformation, from the quotes that I've given so far, it uses the word needs a lot. I have basic needs that have to be filled. But if you listen carefully, when they talk, you'll notice that the needs don't really mean needs. It means desires and wants. When they say needs, I have basic needs, they mean I have basic desires. And under the guise of needs, sinful desires are often justified. For instance, I was told of a wife and a mother who said as an excuse for leaving her husband and her children, 
I have a need to have freedom from the responsibilities of being a wife and a mother now while I'm still young. No, she doesn't have a need to be free from her responsibilities that God gave her. She has a desire, a rebellious desire to be free from these things. So when people talk about these basic needs, understand that more times than not, they are talking about their basic sinful desires. If you have read any of the self-esteem, self-love literature at all, you've surely noticed a new way of saying things. Instead of simply saying, I have a need to do this or that, I have a need to tell you that you are wrong, they have a new way. Or I have a need to to do something. Now when they come to you with that new construction of I need to do, watch out for what follows. Because it is not uncommon for the next words to be the expression of not basic human needs, but of desires and probably of sinful desires, excused by the opening formula, I have a basic need too. People used to say, I need such and such. But now they say, I have a need to do or be such and such. The former way, I need such and such, referred to an objective secondary need. I am going to be digging a ditch, so I need a shovel. That is the proper use of the word need. The latter uses... Usage, I have a need to, refers to a supposed, apparent, subjective, psychological need. I have a need to say this to you. I don't love you anymore. That's not a need. You just want to say that to that person. So whenever you hear these self-love people use the phrase, I have a need to do this or that, watch out. Scratch out the word need and replace it with desire, and you will understand exactly what they are really saying. The new gospel of self-love, of the new reformation, adds another twist to its false teaching. It says not only are we people of self-worth who must love ourselves, but they say that God redeems man because of man's great infinite worth. The reason God sent Jesus to die on the cross is because men and women are worth so much. So in exalting man and his alleged infinite worth, God's grace is, of course, denied. But it is not at all because of any merit or worth in us that God sent his Son But in spite of our demerits and the lack of worth and because of his unmerited favor and undeserved love. Romans 5.9 says, But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't demonstrate our infinite worth. He demonstrated his great love for us while we were sinners by sending his son to die for us. Listen to J. Adams again. We should not think of man as the motivating cause of redemption. No man was so, no man was so valuable to God that God saved him. 
On the contrary, the ultimate cause of salvation was solely in God himself, who, as Romans 9 says, in order to demonstrate his worth and to make his power known, and in order to make known the riches of his glory, he determined to set his love on rebellious sinners upon this planet, saving those who believe and rejecting those who do not, end quote. So you see, when you read scripture, you see that the cross was not the greatest, as the new reformers say, demonstration of a person's worth to God, for we are unloving, unlovable, unlovely. Rather, the cross was the greatest demonstration of God's mercy and God's love and God's grace for people who had no merit at all whatsoever. One self-love advocate said, It is bad that in some Christians their self-esteem is so terribly low that they are amazed that God forgave their sins in the first place making fun there of the Reformed hymn, Amazing Grace. Of course, they don't like that hymn for two reasons. Because they can't figure out why a person who has low self-esteem is amazed he is forgiven. And they certainly don't like the third word from the end of the first verse. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a highly worthy person like me. No, not hardly. That saved a wretch like me. They hate that word, wretch. Adam continues. To say that Christ died for us because we are of great worth, valuable to God, precious to him, is to suppose that in some sense we are needed by God. True men and women are of some value to one another, but to God? What do we add to him who says... He stands in need of nothing he has made, end quote. What do we add to him? Nothing. To be of value is to be valuable for something. But of what value is man to God? In no way do any of us, in the slightest degree, benefit God at all before man existed. The Trinity possessed perfection of fellowship as well as perfection of being and total blessedness and happiness, totally satisfied with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God didn't make man or need him to fill some emptiness in himself. And God continues today as he's always been, self-sufficient in need of nothing He has made. Well, one of the most perverted things about the gospel of the New Reformation is that they claim to get it out of the Bible. They claim this is a biblical doctrine, that every person must be concerned with self-worth, high self-esteem, love for himself. And I want to look at some of these passages that misuse to support their false doctrine. So please turn to Matthew 22 to get a complete picture of these things. Of course, there are key verses from Jesus' comments there in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. 
He said, The greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, there it is. We are to love God. We are to love ourselves. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now let me remind you of the insightful thing John Calvin said four or five centuries ago explaining this passage. He said, We shall never love our neighbors with sincerity according to our Lord's intention until we have corrected the love of ourselves. The two affections are opposites and contradictory. For the love of ourselves leads us to neglect or despise others. Our Lord therefore enjoins that it be changed into the love of our neighbor, end quote. He's saying, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself is to be changed from love of self to love of neighbor. In other words, turn yourself inside out, Christian. The same self-centeredness, the same self-direction and intensity of love that you have for yourself already, naturally as a sinner, turn yourself inside out and focus it on your neighbor. Now, the self-love people say that is what Jesus was conveying. Self-love is the prerequisite and criteria for our conduct toward our neighbors. You're not going to be able to love your neighbor and love God until you first love yourself, and the way you love yourself is the standard by which you judge how you are going to have to love your neighbor. Now, that is the gospel of the so-called New Reformation. <clears throat> you must love yourself because you are of infinite worth, and when you recognize that and do it, you are free to love God and your neighbor. And until you are able to love yourself, you cannot love God or your neighbor. And the criteria you use to judge your conduct toward other people is the way you love yourself. There are several things, of course, wrong with that. First, there are not three commandments here. Jesus does not say the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the third is like unto that, you shall love yourself. There is no third commandment here. He makes it clear there are only two. There is no commandment to love yourself. There is no commandment anywhere in Scripture to love yourself. Secondly, the Bible alone is the criteria and standard for regulating our conduct toward our neighbor. We don't look and see how we love ourselves because we don't even love ourselves very well and then use that as the standard to love other people. The only standard that we have to determine how we are going to love other people and how we are to relate to other people is from the Word of God. And then the third and most obvious thing about Jesus' remarks is that self-love is presupposed. 
He doesn't have to tell them, love yourself. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He is presupposing that we already love ourselves, and he is saying, in essence, love your neighbor as you already are loving yourself with the same fervency, the same intensity, and the same amount of love. Now love your neighbor the same way you're already loving yourself. How are you loving yourself? You love yourself a lot with fervency, and intensity. All right now, you must just love your neighbor like that. Only by the grace of God are you enabled to turn yourself inside out as a Christian. Now do it. Love your neighbor as you have been loving yourself, just as fervently, just as intensely, just as devotedly, with the same amount of love. Now let me emphasize there in verse 39, Jesus' words when he said, the second commandment is just like the first. The commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is just like the first commandment, which says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now how is the second commandment like it? In two ways. Both of those commandments are commands to love And the second way is this, as God is to be loved with everything you are and everything you have, that is, with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, sincerely, fervently, and wholeheartedly, so you and I are to love our neighbors as wholeheartedly as we love ourselves. So, you can say the second is like unto it, just like love the Lord With all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you are to love your neighbor with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, rather than focusing all of that intense love on yourself. So as J. Adam writes, love itself is the very cessation of self-directed, self-conceived, self-centered living. Self-esteem pursuits deflect one's attention from other people and thus destroys Christian love. True love, that is, other people directed concern alone, sets us free from self. The Bible teaches that you can't properly relate to yourself until you first of all learn how to love other people, end quote. All right. That's the first verse they use, Matthew 22, 36. But we see what they claim it means does not mean that at all. Is that does not say love yourself first, love God, love your neighbor as you have been loving yourself with the same intensity. There is no command anywhere to love yourself. No prerequisite to love yourself. In fact, loving yourself is not the prerequisite. It is the impediment to loving other people. Another one of their favorite verses they like to misapply is Romans 6. Turn with me there, if you would, please. Romans 6, verses 10 and 11. Romans 6, verses 10 and 11. For the death that he, that is Christ, died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. 
Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, here is the point according to the self-lovers. The believer is to look at himself in a certain way, to have a particular image of himself. They say this text that says that we are dead to sin's power, we are new creatures in Christ, we have a new life in Christ, we are raised to newness of life in Him, enables us to have high self-image of ourselves, because in Christ we stand completely forgiven and completely changed, and that means we are to feel good about ourselves. In other words, that is the application they make of Romans 6.11. Because you are dead to sin and alive to God, totally forgiven, completely changed, you are a new person, so you can have high self-esteem and feel real good about yourself. The problem is, verse 12 applies verse 11. And notice the application. He doesn't say because you are dead to sin and alive to God, you ought to feel good about yourself. No, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. In other words, because you are a new creature in Christ and the dominion of sin over you has been broken, then in your everyday living, start living up to the high standard of God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Present yourself every day to the Lord. Don't let those old habits and drives and appetites that once dominated your lives dominate you anymore. So you see, Paul doesn't say because you're a new creature. Completely forgiven, completely changed, you should feel good about yourself. No, he says, because you're a new creature, completely changed, you are now free from sin's bondage. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your life anymore, but seek to live by the power of the Word of God. We are not too smugly, to be smugly satisfied with ourselves, beloved so that we accept ourselves the way we are. Rather, we are to destroy any self-satisfaction that may exist and work at making progress in Christian living. So Romans 6.11 does not say what they think it says. We are new creatures, so feel good about yourselves. No, we are new creatures. Therefore, don't sin so much. Let's look again at one of their favorite verses, Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. There are two great words you need to know the difference between, eisegesis and exegesis. Preachers use these words while they're studying scripture. Exegesis means to lead out of. That is, you read a text in the Bible and you lead out of the text by studying the grammar and the context, what the text is saying, without reading into it, which is eisegesis. Reading into it what you want it to say to fit some particular scheme you may have. And one of the great blessings about the Reformed faith to me is, we don't have to commit eisegesis to form our doctrines. 
You just take the word of God at face value and consider them in the plain and ordinary sense of the word in their context and their historical setting and see the truth of Scripture. Whenever anyone reads into Scripture something it doesn't teach, then you know something is wrong. But Matthew 6.26 is one of their favorite eisegetical verses. And for someone who doesn't think much, their view may appear to be correct. Listen, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? There it is. Here you have Jesus actually talking about man as valuable and of infinite worth to God. Look at all these sparrows. They're flying all around. And God takes care of them. But man is of infinite worth to God. So God certainly takes care of him. All you have to do to see the phoniness of that interpretation is to ask this verse two questions. Exactly how much value and worth does Jesus say a man has in this verse? It says clearly his has more value than sparrows. And if you were in the New Testament times when Jesus was alive, you could have bought two sparrows for one penny. You could have bought five sparrows for two pennies. And man is worth more than the sparrows, right? Well, maybe a dollar? The point is, not man's great worth. He is worth more than sparrows. Okay, granted. But the point is not man's great worth. It is God's providential fatherly care. The really big thing in this verse is not man, it's God. He extends his grace and his providence and his careful fatherly oversight to sparrows, which are worth so little, then surely extends to human beings as well, who are worth more than a handful of sparrows, five pennies, possibly, But man is not of infinite worth. There's another question to ask this text. To whom is man said to have value in Matthew 6, 26? Jesus says, I take care of the birds. Man has more value than birds, doesn't he? Then God will take care of man also. Now to whom is man said to be of such value that he's worth more than a handful of sparrows? Well, Jesus is discussing value in monetary terms, which means he is speaking of man's worth to other men. What are these sparrows worth to other men? Two for a penny. To other men, to people, people are worth more than sparrows. The bird is worth so much to a person, but a man is worth more to another person. You see, man's value to God is not even brought in to the discussion here. The argument from the lesser to the greater has to do with God's providence, not man's value. So here is another one of their so-called proof texts that when you look at it 
carefully and honestly does not at all say what they try to make it say. But let's look at some of those passages now that the new Reformation people overlook and ignore because there are some of, there are some of the many passages which flatly contradict the self-love, self-worth teachers. In the face of some of these passages, a man by the name of Anthony Hokema, in a book called A Christian Looks at Himself, said this, In some of the official formularies used by evangelical churches, believers are urged to loathe and abhor themselves. Again, the terminology is unfortunate. Well, Hokema's terminology is unfortunate in light of the word of God. In fact, it is hokey. Get it? Anthony Hokema? Let me remind you of some of the passages of Scripture. Job verse 40, chapter 40, verse 3. Behold, I'm insignificant, said Job, before God. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job 42, 6. I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. As David said himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Here you have the Spirit-inspired David saying, I'm a worm, not a man. And Hokema says that, says that the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Should he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Confades to many people a quite unflattering self-image. And he's correct. He gets the point here. But there are three passages that I want us to look at particularly. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be led captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which have been turned away from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their sight for their evils, which they have committed for all of their abominations. This is God talking here now, and he says, when I convict them of their sins, they will loathe themselves because of all of their abominations. Verse 10, then having loathed themselves, they will know that I am the Lord. So if they do not loathe themselves and repent, they will not know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster upon them. Look at chapter 20 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel verses 43 and 44. Ezekiel chapter 20. And there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight. That should be your self-image right there, beloved. By the way, <clears throat> the word loathe in Hebrew means nauseating, 
putrefaction. You will loathe yourselves and make yourself sick about yourselves in your own sight for all the evils you have done. Then you will know that I am the Lord God when I have dealt with you for my namesake, not according to your evil ways or ascending to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Look at Ezekiel 36, verses 29 through 31. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. <coughs> then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. It doesn't say. You're going to hate your sin. It says you're going to hate yourself for sinning. Listen again to Jay Adams. What God is saying in Ezekiel is that when his people go astray, he will bring them to a place where they have such a low self-image that they will loathe themselves. This loathing is not unfortunate, unfortunate as Hokema said, but it is commendable in God's sight because it is part of true repentance, In quote. You see, beloved, if you don't learn to loathe yourselves because of your sin, you don't know what repentance truly is, because repentance includes grief, it includes conviction of sin, it includes self-abhorrence and self-loathing. Now, I don't mean this because of the way God created you, you know, because you don't like the color of your hair and you just can't do anything with it. Or I hate myself because I'm so short. I hate myself because I'm too big or whatever. I'm not talking about hating yourself because you don't like the way God made you. That in itself is sinful. You hate yourself because of what you have made of yourself. Because of your sins. Let's look at another passage that the self-lovers overlook. It is in 1 Corinthians. You say, well, all those others are the Old Testament. Well, you'll see the New Testament is possibly even worse. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. Very familiar passage. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, now listen, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. That's certainly not talking about self-love, because later on, it's going to describe what love is toward other people. 
I can have all these powerful, extraordinary religious experiences, but if I do not have love in my heart for Jesus Christ and other people, I am nothing, is what Paul said. Self-esteem teachers speak much about getting love and being loved so that other needs are met. But notice what our text says of the person who fails to love other people. Whether he loves himself or not. If he fails to love other people, he is nothing. You see, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2 create an insurmountable problem for the self-lovers. Adams again. Think about it for a moment. According to standard self-worth teaching. A person must be somebody of worth to himself in order to love others. But God declares that he is nothing until and unless he loves Christ and other people. Self-love says you can't love Christ and other people until you love yourself. Once you love yourself and see yourself of infinite worth, then you can do it. End quote. Paul says until you love Christ... And other people, you are nothing. You are worth nothing. One self-love author actually makes this claim. I'm special because I exist. I have self-worth and no matter what I do, I will never lose this self-worth. Well, if this is true, then not only Hitler, But every man and woman who is suffering in hell right this moment has a right to a good self-image. You see the stupidity of this heresy? Please turn to Psalm 58, verse 1. What does this psalm say about self-worth? Do you indeed speak rightly, O gods? Do you judge rightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of the serpent, like a dead cobra that stops up its ears so it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful caster of spells. Do you see any self-worth in those five verses? All I see is that man is innately wicked from his birth unless he is touched by the grace of God. What is man worth? Verse 6. O God, shatter their teeth and their mouths. Break out the fangs of the young lions. Let them flow away like the water runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail that melts away as it goes along. Like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thrones, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind. The green and the burning alike. Do you see any self-worth there? Here is one you might memorize, Psalm 62, verse 9. I'm sure that God had the modern self-lovers in mind when he had the psalmist write these words, Psalm 62, 9. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Here is the balance, and they're weighing their worth. 
And not only are they of no worth, the scale goes up. They are worth less than nothing. Let me read it again. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. So you see, from one spectrum to the other, one end to the other, from the common man to the high and mighty, everyone is included. In the balances they go up, which is their worth, together they are lighter than breath. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? When God weighs a man on his scales, man has no weight at all. In fact, if you throw everyone together in one big heap on God's scales, and instead of weighing down God's scales, God says the scales are going to go up. In other words, they are like negative weight, lighter than nothing. What a graphic picture of man's utter nothingness in his rebellion against God. The psalm, famous Psalm 8 asks the question in verse 4, What is man that you, God, take thought of him or are even mindful of him? And in Psalm 62 answers, nothing, less than nothing. Now what is the point? The point is, We should stand in amazement that God would care for men and women at all who are of negative weight. That God would show his providential fatherly care in every area of our lives shows something of God's greatness and God's infinite worth, not man's. So then what does the Bible teach us as to what our attitude toward ourselves is? should be over against the self-affirmation of the new reformation jesus sets forth self-denial turn to matthew 16 please verses 14 and 15 again familiar verses from romans then jesus says to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me For whoever is to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. It doesn't say, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him love himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You see, the emphasis is of self-denial. Now, what is self-denial? It doesn't mean you deny yourself particular things. This past year, I gave up onions for Lent. I didn't eat one piece of an onion during that period of time. Of course, I never do eat onions, but that's beside the point. So self-denial is not to give up something. Self-denial is to deny yourself. It is to say no to yourself. It is to put yourself last and to put Christ and other people before yourself. When self says, love me fervently and intensely, and you use other people in order to satisfy my needs, the Christian disciple says, no, 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 no. Turn to Mark chapter 8, and you'll see a parallel text. Mark eight thirty four and following. <clears throat> Mark eight thirty four and following. And he summoned a multitude with his disciples, and he said to them, 
If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. Now look at Luke and you'll see a little variance in all of these passages that fill in the whole picture here. In Luke 9.24, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, and for whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what has a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits it? The reason I read all these verses is to show you that the words self and life are used interchangeably here. He is to deny himself. He is not to try and save his life or else he will lose himself. You see that? But I want you to see that self and life mean the same thing and are used interchangeably. It says, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses himself for my sake and the gospel shall find it. So what is God telling us now? He's telling us that if we are going to be his disciples and be citizens of his kingdom with all of the blessings of salvation that that entails, that not only will we have to say no to ourselves, deny ourselves, quit loving ourselves, and turn ourselves inside out, but we will also have to say yes to him. If any man is going to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's just not a thing of self-denial. It is a matter of self-denial and replacing self with Christ and not following and now following him throughout all your life. But it also involves putting yourself to death every day by taking up your cross daily. If a man means to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now that phrase, take up your cross daily, doesn't mean like People say all the time, well, Gary, if you only knew my husband, my husband is my cross. He is the cross I've got to bear. Or men say about their wives, that is the cross I have to bear. But that is not what this verse is getting at. Let me read to you Jay Adams' helpful explanation. <clears throat> what did Jesus mean? Take up your cross every day. Take up the cross does not mean making some particular sacrifice, nor does it refer to some particular burden. Anyone in Jesus' day reading these words would know plainly that taking up the cross meant one and only one thing, putting to death an infamous criminal. Jesus, therefore, was saying, you must treat yourself with all your sinful ways, priorities, and desires like a criminal, and put self to death every day. This says something about the self-image that Christ expects us to have. This is bitter medicine for all of us, yet is the only cure for a church that increasingly grows sick. The seeming paradox is that a person who focuses attention on himself will lose all he wants to preserve himself. Whereas the person who puts Christ and his interests first is the one who gains all that the other loses. So Howard, you look at yourself as Christians. You are to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, constantly treating yourself as a criminal. 
hating yourself because of the criminality you see in self, turning from it, begging God for cleansing and following Christ, giving yourself, throwing yourself entirely in the service of Christ and His kingdom, not trying to focus on your own life and saving your life, but losing it in the service of Christ and others, because only then, my friends, will you save it. Then John twelve twenty five that most people don't even realize is in the Bible. These are the words of Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 25. This is as clear as it can be, beloved. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it. Is there any more damning statement in all of Scripture of the new Reformation movement and the self-lovers? He who loves his life loses it. Remember, life and self are the same thing. He who loves himself loses himself, and he who hates himself or his life in this world shall keep it until life eternal. It is clear. Whoever loves himself loses his life. Whoever hates himself lives forever. What is it to love yourself? It is to see as the goal of life, the all-consuming thrust to meet your needs, to satisfy the basic needs of self, which is idolatry. Paul says their gods are their belly. Their God is their satisfaction. The only thing or main thing they love is meeting and satisfying the needs of this God. So when you love yourself, you are committing idolatry. What is it to hate yourself? Is it to wish you had a different color hair, to have a different nose, to be taller? No, to hate ourselves means to hate what our sins have done to us. And because we have disappointed God in the way we have lived before him, we are to hate self and lose self for Christ by putting aside our own desires, our own interests, our own concerns, in order to do Christ's bidding. Christ and his kingdom are to absorb all we are and all we have. Its demands, its interests, all come before our friends and our family and ourselves. Jesus is telling us here, you must choose You must make a choice between loving yourself and serving Christ because you cannot do both. The consequence of self-love is the eternal loss of life. The result of hating yourself and loving Christ is the enjoyment of life forever in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, our great God, for speaking so clearly on this issue to us, helping us to see the reality of our relationship with you. We pray that by your Spirit, it would cause us to loathe ourselves for our sins, that we might love Christ with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbors as ourselves. Help us because we want to be disciples of Christ, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow him. For Christ's sake, amen.